presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today we return to our study specifically of Galatians. In our last study, study 5, we talked about uh, the doctrine of imputation. So, uh, And of course it's re- certainly related to Galatians. But we go back to uh, Paul's letter. Again, this was the first letter that he wrote. Uh, he wrote it after the uh, uh, missionary journey, a missionary tour up uh, into the uh, uh, south-central part of what is today Turkey, uh, where the uh, province of Galatia was located. Remember that uh, there were a group of Judaizers who were uh, Jews who were professing believers in Christ, who were following Paul and Barnabas around and saying, yeah, well, what they have to say about believing in Christ is, uh, is, is true, and that's a great idea. But you also have to keep the law and the law of Moses. Uh, and of course, uh, the Galatians were primarily Gentiles, so they knew little of that except what they had seen perhaps some of their neighbors doing. So uh, the Judaizers uh, were very busy uh, denigrating Paul and his apostleship, saying it was not really a valid uh, call to apostleship. And they uh, certainly denigrated uh, the gospel that he was preaching because it was a gospel of grace apart from any works of the law at all. Well, at this point uh, in our study, Paul has concluded essentially his defense of his apostleship. And uh, he has taken up the defense of uh, the, the preaching of the gospel of grace. And he, we're talking about justification. In fact, our uh, the title of our study today is Justification and the Law. And you might wonder, well, why would Paul even talk to a group of Gentiles about, uh, about law, and specifically the law of Moses? And again, the reason is because of the uh, presence of the Judaizers who were trying to put uh, these new believers in Galatia who had been saved by the grace of God apart from any works of the law. Uh, They were trying to put them uh, up under the law, saying, look, uh, you know, you you can really please God by keeping the Sabbath. You can can please God by keeping all of the the new moons and, and by keeping kosher. Uh, you guys, you in fact, you guys, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. After all, Jesus Himself was a Jew. There were all sorts of arguments that they were making, and so that's the reason that Paul uh, takes up the whole issue of uh, of the law of Moses in this letter, even though he's writing primarily to a group of people who were not all that familiar with that. And he's talking about justification. Uh, Remember that justification is that act of God uh, whereby He declares the believing sinner to be righteous in Christ Jesus. Righteousness is imputed to the believing sinner. When we uh, express faith in Christ, when we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then what happens is that God imputes to us, He credits to us, all of the righteousness of Christ Himself. He, we are that. That's our position. Now, obviously, that's not always our practice. A justification has to do with position. Practice has to do, <clears throat> excuse me, with sanctification. Get a sip of water. Still having a little trouble from time to time with my with my voice. He makes seven arguments for justification by faith. Uh, one from the Galatians' own experience in Galatians, the first part of Galatians 3. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you now so foolish having begun by the Spirit or are you now being perfected by the flesh? Why, in other words, why would you go back? You, you didn't start off with the law, so why would you go back? <clears throat> Excuse me, why would you go back to the law? 
Then uh, his second argument is that uh, from from the precedent of Abraham itself. And he mentions in Galatians 3, verses 17 and 18, he says the law, again speaking specifically of the law of Moses, that was the law that was received at Sinai. The law which came 430 years afterward, after what? After the covenant with Abraham, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. God had made that, uh, well, remember it's called a unilateral covenant. It was God did all the promising and God said what was going to happen. And at the time that God made that covenant with Abraham, Abraham was sound asleep. So Abraham didn't make any promises. Uh, all, all, he was simply a recipient of the grace of God. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. When, when God gave the law there at Sinai, it did not void the covenant that God had made with Abraham, is what he's saying. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In fact, he even, uh, as you'll recall, he even uh, uh, argued from a contemporary legal system where he says in Galatians 3.15, he says, even with a man-made covenant, that is when you draw up your will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified, uh, not under Greek law. But then uh, the, the, the fourth argument that he makes has to do with the true purpose of the law. And that's what we're going to take up in, uh, in this session today. Now in our uh, subsequent studies, uh, the last three arguments that he'll make uh, in our next time, we'll talk about the believer's position in Christ, what it, what it means to be an adopted child of Christ. And then he, ta- he makes a personal appeal, and then he uses uh, some allegory. So let me just uh, read a few verses that uh, Paul, where Paul has already referenced the law in his letter in writing to the to the Galatians. Notice uh, and and just uh, kind of follow along in, in your notes, if you will. He says, "I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, and notice that's." In our English language, that's subjunctive. If it were through the law, which means it's not through the law. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If if we can gain righteousness that's pleasing to God through our works, then why did Christ have to die? In fact, it just makes Christ's death a useless tragedy if we're able to... Well, if we're able to uh, work out our own righteousness. He goes on to say, uh, and this is the verse that I read before, another reference to the law. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Notice there's a link between the flesh and and the law, and that link is works. It's stuff that we do, uh, going seeking to establish our own righteousness rather than uh, accepting and uh, understanding the the righteousness that God imputes to us when we express faith in Christ. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did those miracles occur? Was it because you were so obedient all the time or was it based on the grace of God and you just simply believed what God was doing? Uh, he goes on to say uh, in another passage here in the same letter, he says, For all who rely on works of the law, that is, on your ability to establish your own righteousness. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. So, some people say, well, what's the big deal? You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not subject to the law of Moses, and I know I'm not subject to the law of Moses. I'm not going to keep kosher. Uh, I'm not going to keep the Sabbath and and it doesn't bother me that I'm not doing any of those things and nobody's going to be able to talk me into the fact that, that, uh, that that's what I ought to be doing. 
Well, the law that Paul is talking about, obviously, is specifically the law of Moses because the Judaizers were attacking him and the gospel that he preached based on the law of Moses. However, for us, the, the law, well, it could be the law of Moses because there are some people who will tell you today that you, you, you ought to, uh, you, it's necessary to keep the Sabbath. But the law for us could be any sort of rules and regulations by which we think that we can ingratiate ourselves to God. Um, there are some organizations, uh, religious organizations, that say the way that you are saved is through faith in Christ and baptism. That's, that's works. And when you mix grace and works, uh, you have something that, uh, that, that is not salvific in, uh, in any way. So he says to us when uh, he says to the Galatians, for all who rely on works of the law, for us, any sort of system of merit that we could come up with by which we're going to ingrati- think we're going to ingratiate ourselves to God, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Under a curse, trying to keep the law, trying to keep some system of uh, merit trying to ingratiate ourselves with God only brings a curse upon us. He says, and and his reference there, uh, and I had not actually planned to get into this, but I, but I, I will just momentarily, um, goes back to, a, to something that happened in the Old Testament back in Deuteronomy 27 when uh, the... Uh, the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land. Remember, Moses was uh, Deuteronomy was the second giving of the law there in the plains of Moab, and uh, it was right before Moses died and Joshua took over. And in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-seven, it says, "Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law. And then he goes on to say, And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones which I command you today on Mount Ebal. Well, that was not right after you crossed over the Jordan. Mount Ebal, and later he mentions Mount Gerizim, are two mountains, uh, two ridges that uh, that are in the area of, of Shechem, uh, which is uh, uh, north and uh, north and uh, west of where where they crossed over the Jordan. And he says, uh, You shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God on altar on an altar of stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now notice the this this the law was written on and placed on Mount Ebal, and it says when you have crossed over the Jordan, uh, he talks about uh, the people who are going to stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, and he names uh, names six uh, six repre- six tribes that will be represented there, and he says these shall stand, and then he uh, on Mount Ebal for the curse. And he names six others of the uh, uh, of the uh, tribes, and the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, and then uh, and then he just lists curse after curse after curse after curse in Deuteronomy 27. Now the point that I'm making that you thought I'd never get to, I'm sure, is that the curses were pronounced from Mount Ebal, the blessings were pronounced from Mount Gerizim. Where was the law written? It was written down on stones that were on Mount Ebal. Notice, 
the, as the as the law was read, it was it was the curses came from disobedience to the law. So the the point is this: when it was time to remind the people of Israel of the importance of obedience to the the covenant, the uh, that is the uh, the this this covenant uh, 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 of law. The words of the law of Moses were published on the mount from which curses, not blessings, were pronounced. And the point is that the law cannot save anyone. All it can do is condemn because of the inherent sinfulness of all of us. The good news of the gospel is that Christ's perfect obedience to the law and His willing obedience of going to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all of God's people is counted or credited or imputed to those who trust in Him. But why? Because He has taken upon Himself the curse for the believer's disobedience. And so God freely blesses the believer with eternal life and takes up residence within him via the Holy Spirit. And that's uh, what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, over the next few weeks. So when Paul writes here and he says uh, he says it's evident that no one I'm sorry I'm, I missed a verse all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's what he's talking about. You cannot bring the blessings. You cannot, uh, the blessings will not come by trying to keep the law. You say, well, but I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to be a good guy. But what you're doing is you're slapping God in the face and saying, I don't care what Jesus did. I don't care how perfect His obedience was. I don't care what you say, Lord, about uh, about having to uh, be clothed with His righteousness. I'm going to establish my own righteousness. And God says that attitude brings a curse on you, not a blessing. Which is just the opposite, see, of what the Judaizers were trying to relate to the uh, Galatians. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Paul also says in Galatians, he says, uh, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes from Habakkuk. He says, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He says, look, there's two ways of... of, uh, of trying to be in right relationship with God, one way is the right way, and that's through faith in Christ and receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ at the time we declare that we are trusting in Him and Him alone. Or the other way is to try to do it on our own. And uh, he says, okay, if you're going to do it on your own, you got to live by those rules and regulations. Well, if you only break one, and we're all sinners, we bring a curse upon ourselves. And then he says this, and this is where we were headed today anyway. He says, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So this is where we kind of left off uh, the, the study before last. Abraham was justified by faith by faith alone in the promises of God. So, Paul asks a rational question in verse 19 where we take up the study today. That was a little bit more of a, a background than I had in previously that I had actually intended. But he asks a very rational question. What's the purpose of the law? Galatians 3 verse uh, verse 19. Well, if if in verse 18 if if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If that's true, then what's the whole point of the law anyway? Why, why, it's, it's like God says, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it. But then 430 years later, He says, okay, uh, now I'm going to give you all these rules and regulations. And the rational question is, why? 
Why the law then? And Paul asked that question and he answers it. He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a couple of things about this. Notice that word until. What does the word until imply? It implies that the law somehow was temporary. Uh, also, he goes on to say, when, when he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, who is this offspring? The offspring is Christ. He was born uh, in, the, in the line of Abraham. He is the one through whom all the promises would be fulfilled. It was added, the law was added because of transgressions. Remember, transgression is, is stepping across the line. To sin means to miss the mark. I, I, may not, I may or may not know what's right or wrong, but I miss the mark. But with a transgression, I know what's wrong and I just put my foot across the line. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And, notice the second thing he says about the law. First he said it was, it was temporary, it was only until. And then he says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now who's the intermediary? Well, it was Moses. He's the one who's up on the top of the mountain who was uh, receiving the law. And then in verse 20, he says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, now what's, what's the point that he's making here? He says, okay, first of all, you need to know this, that the law was temporary. It was, it was, it was only in effect until, uh, until the promised one would come, the, uh, the offspring who would bring uh, blessing to the entire world. Uh, and that, was, uh, that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, uh, also, the law is inferior to the promise that was made to Abraham. Now, why, why is it inferior in some way? I mean, it comes from God, so why would it be inferior? He says, well, the reason it's inferior is because it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Notice, uh, if God spoke to some angels, the angels spoke to Moses, and Moses gave the law to the people. But when Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham... What sort of intermediary was there? There was no intermediary. God put Abraham to sleep and God uh, spoke to Abraham during that time he was asleep, made all the promises, and it was an unconditional covenant, whereas the covenant that uh, God gave on Mount Sinai was a conditional covenant. You read through it. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do that. If you don't do this, I guarantee you I'll do this. That was the law. And uh, it, it was just... It had been perverted to a great extent uh, and added to in lots of ways by the time the, the Lord Jesus came along. But the unconditional covenant that God had made with Abraham, there was no mediator necessary. So, first of all, we see that. Now, let me read you uh, something, these same verses, from a paraphrase, the, the, living, uh, the living Testament. Uh, and, and incidentally, it is a paraphrase. When you do Bible study, you need to read a translation. really good one that I like to use is the ESV, the New American Standard. The NAS is good. Uh, the NIV is, uh, is, is good as well, although there are a few things about it that I don't particularly care for. But this is a paraphrase, but it really gives us, it gives us the gist of what he's uh, talking about here. He says, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave His law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when He gave His promise to Abraham. See, there's the difference. I, and I, I really like that paraphrase there because it, uh, it, it really stands out. Now, 
what is he arguing about the true purpose of the law? First of all, we've seen that he says that the law clearly was temporary. Secondly, it was inferior to the promise that God had made to Abraham. Later on, several years later, Paul, when he wrote his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 7, there's sort of a divine ER, uh, MRI and CAT scan where, where he kind of talks about the purpose of the law there. Let me just read you a few verses uh, beginning at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. He says, uh, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not, and he uses the tenth he uses the tenth of the Ten Commandments, the one about coveting, to, to express his point. And what he's telling us here, he says the purpose of the first thing that the law does is it reveals sin. Uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, now what does that mean? He, goes, he gives us an, an illustration in his own life. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, that's the commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Have you ever noticed that when, when, you, when you run across a sign that says do not do something, uh, there's something inside of you that makes you want to do it anyway, don't walk on the grass. Well, I'm going to put my foot on the grass. Don't touch wet paint. We reach out and oh my goodness, now where am I going to put this paint that's on my finger? Uh, you know, if if there were if 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 we were in the uh, some classroom somewhere, and uh, and there were signs on every wall that says "Do not do not spit on the floor." Well, see, you would you wouldn't consider spitting on the floor, but you see that sign, and all of a sudden you start to salivate. There's something uh, about. Uh, prohibitions that stir us up and that's the second purpose of the law is that not only does it reveal sin but it provokes sin it stirs up sin within us and that was that was one of the purposes uh, of the law uh, now what was it that uh, Paul was coveting he doesn't tell us here uh, in Romans chapter 7 I, I suspect uh, well I'm not I'm not even going to speculate he says, uh, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, that is when it, when it really came clear to him about this thing of coveting, he says, Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life. Now how did the commandment promise life? Well, God had said if you do all these things, you'll have life. See, the problem is we can't do all of these things. And here Paul is reminding us, he's saying, you know, in this area of coveting, I, I, how could I not do that? You know, what again, what was he coveting? We don't we don't know. Some people think that perhaps it was uh, it was just being able to uh, be a more dynamic preacher and teacher. Say, for example, uh, like the ones who had uh, who had who had taught him. But he says this very the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. It killed me. It turned out to be a curse. Why? Because I couldn't do it. I couldn't control my, the coveting that was going on. Verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What's wrong with the law? There's nothing wrong with the law. It came from God. It's as holy as God is. But there's nothing wrong with the law. So he asks the question, he says in verse 13 of Romans 7, did that which is good then bring death to me? He says, by no means. It wasn't the, the, law, the law was not the problem. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here he talks about the insidiousness of sin. Notice he says he's he's given us he's given us four four purposes of the law right here. 
And I, I mentioned two of them specifically. First of all, it reveals sin because it shows us what's sinful. Secondly, it provokes sin in it. It just stirs us up when we see these prohibitions. Thirdly, it, it renders us hopeless. He, he says, I, I thought that it proved, I thought that it was going to bring life, but instead it didn't. It brought death because I couldn't keep it. So it, it renders us hopeless. Well, what am I going to do now? And then, then this in this last uh, verse that I read in verse 13, he says, "...in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, commandment might become sinful beyond measure." It intensifies the guilt that we are experiencing. That's the point that he's making. Now, think about it. When the law was given there in Exodus 19, it was a glorious, impressive event. Uh, in Exodus 19, verses 16 and following, uh, I'll just read you a few verses here. It says, On the morning of the third day, now this was when the law was going to be given at Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. What a glorious, impressive event that was. And clearly, that's far more dramatic than what happened with Abraham. I mean, Abraham just worn out. He's an old man. He's sound asleep and God passes through those dead pieces of flesh and makes the makes the covenant. That, I mean, that's, that's impressive, but not nearly as impressive as, as fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and all those kinds of things. I mean, it's just... So, the obvious question arises if God never intended that human beings should be justified by keeping the law, why even bother to give it? And the twofold answer is, he says, remember we just read, because of transgressions that exposes sin as sin. Uh, that is, we realize that what we're doing is not just simply missing a mark, but we're stepping across a boundary. God has forbidden that we do that. It, it also provokes sin in us. It intensifies the guilt that we're experiencing. But he says also, it was, it was in, uh, in operation, the law was in operation only until the time of Christ's death and resurrection. Remember what happened there when, uh, when Jesus died on the cross in the temple itself? Uh, remember it says that when, when He died, that that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Remember the Holy of Holies was the place where only the high priest could go only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur to sprinkle the blood back there and burn some incense and, uh, and then you're supposed to be good for another year. But you had to go back year after year after year after year. And, uh, uh, and what happened, that there was this real thick curtain that separated that area from the area in front of it, which was called uh, uh, the Holy Place. The Holy Place and behind it, the Holy of Holies. Remember what happened to that curtain? It says when Jesus died on the cross, it says that veil was split. It was rent in two, and it was rent in two from the top down to the bottom. And this is a huge, thick veil. And what's the picture? The picture is now the way is open. It doesn't take the law. What it takes is simple faith in the finished work of Christ that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. It was the substitutionary, sacrificial death for all of the sins of all of God's people. And now, it's not a matter of offering sacrifice. 
In fact, the only sacrifice that we can offer is our, is our lives. Uh, and the, the book of Hebrews also talks about the sacrifice of praise that we can offer the Lord. But there are no more animal sacrifices. There are no more, you know, well, I'm going to give this up and give that up and this will please God if I give this up. No, 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 no. That's again trying to ingratiate ourselves with God and to impress Him and to win His favor. No. The way is open and the way is open through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is God in human flesh and He His perfect obedience now has been imputed to us simply through faith in His finished substitutionary uh, work on the cross. Remember, Jesus cried out. It was the next to the last thing He said from the cross. He cried out, To Telestai, one word. And in our English uh, translations, it's, It is finished. And the idea, it is completely complete. There is nothing you add to this. Nothing at all. Trust in the finished work of Christ and in Him alone. I put in your notes there at the bottom of the first page the uh, the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant to the law, and just uh, and so we'll just look at that just very briefly. Uh, the the law of Moses required a mediator. In fact, uh, really, the people received that third hand, whereas. Abraham, there was no mediator required. That, that came firsthand. The law of Moses was temporary. The promise that God made to Abraham was permanent. The promises made under the uh, Mosaic law were conditional. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do that. Under the promise that God had made to Abraham, uh, the promises were unconditional. Five times is God uh passes through those pieces of flesh uh, affirming that uh, that covenant with Abraham affirming that unilateral covenant five times he says I will he doesn't say I will if you will he says I will I will I will I will this is what I'm going to do now Paul has a follow-up question back to Galatians 3 some of you thought we weren't going to get there he says, uh, well, is, is this then to say that God has contradicted Himself with the uh, giving of the law? In other words, uh, I, I still am not grasping. Okay, I understand that, that, that God's purpose in giving, giving the law was to reveal sin. In fact, it provoked sin. It, it rendered me hopeless. It intensified the guilt. In other words, it was given to me so it would drive me to the Savior because I can't do all this stuff. So I, I need to put my trust in someone who has been able to keep all of this. And that perfect righteousness that He has can be imputed to my account while all of my sinfulness has been imputed to Him. And that's what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, God's promise to Abraham and the law given to Moses are complementary. Now, I don't mean complementary like saying nice things, but complementary in that they they uh, uh, are associated with one another. The law cannot give uh, cannot give eternal life. Paul's already said that in Galatians uh, two twenty one, where he says, "I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." So. In Galatians 3.21, there's the follow-up question that Paul asked. Well then, is the law then, what's the purpose of the law was the first question. And, and he answered that. Verse 21, well then the follow-up question is, well is the law then contrary to the promises of God? You know, is, is, this, is this somehow contrary to what God has already uh, promised from Abraham? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed 
be by the law. And the the inference is there is no law that you can uh, that you can keep that will bring you life because you can't keep all of the law. You offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. The scriptures say. But see, that's what the that's what the Pharisees. Uh, would would teach even in the days of Jesus, and that was uh, Paul's the way Paul thought prior to the time he came to know Christ there on the road to Damascus. He was a Pharisee. He's, in verse twenty-two, he says, "But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe." Now he's 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 telling us something here. He says. He says somehow uh, this giving of the law had something to do with imprisonment of us. In verse 23, he says, Before faith came, that's faith in in Christ and His finished work, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, here Paul personifies the law in two ways. First of all, he's going to talk about the law as a jailer. And secondly, he's going to talk about the law as a tutor. That was that we he's talked about the purpose of the law. But now he says the 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 giving of the law did not was not con- contrary in any way to the promises of Abraham. In fact, uh, it was complementary to that because it it played a a real part. Well, what is the part that it played? Well, the first thing it did was it made prisoners out of us. It put us under the it it, it put us in prison. It imprisoned us until again you notice the temporary thing until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, the term held captive means to to keep inward under lock and key. In other words, the the law was a jailer uh, that held somebody in custody. Uh, <clears throat> In order that they would not escape. Let me, let me, instead of trying to just paraphrase it, let me read you what Kenneth Wiest, a dear saint of God who was just unbelievably adept at the Greek language, uh, in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, Kenneth Wiest wrote this. He said, The term held captive means to keep inward under lock and key. The law was a jailer who held in custody those who were subjected to law, who, who subjected, I'm sorry, subjected to sin, and who subjected to sin? All of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So why was the law a jailer that held in custody all of us? And the reason, he says, is in order that they should not escape the consciousness of their sins and their liability to punishment. See, it was, uh, it was, and again, the whole idea of the law was to show us the hopelessness that we have of trying to do enough, trying to do enough right things to appease a God who is angry over our sin. Um, and the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, um, the author of Hebrews addresses this. This is not in your notes. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following, uh, the author writes, Since therefore the children, he's talking about the children of God here, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the Son, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy or bring to nothing the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, why are people afraid of death? Because there is something inside of us that says, one of these days we are bound to get our comeuppance from somebody somewhere on the other side in in eternity. In other words, we were afraid. The thing that makes us fear death is that when we die, we know we're going to stand before or fall on our faces before a holy God and have to give an account. But see, the great thing about the gospel is that Jesus has paid for those sins. 
And now we don't have to be afraid of death. Death is just a transition from one life to another life. We already, If we're trusting in Christ, we already have eternal life. We're just moving into a different dimension. He says uh, he goes on to say that uh, a, a second uh, way that um, a second personification that he uses regarding the law, he says in verse twenty four. So then the law was our guardian or our tutor until again. There's the word until until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law is a jailer, but the law was also preparatory. It was preparatory in terms of, uh, the. Uh, again, I'll, I'll quote from Kenneth Wiest instead of trying to just explain it. He says, the, the word that's translated guardian or tutor, the word refers to a guardian of a child in its minority rather than to a teacher or a schoolmaster. That is, it's the idea of a child attendant, uh, a nursery worker, as it were. Uh, so you've got this. Uh, you've got this. The the law is like a nursery worker. It was just kind of keeping us in in check until the time that we would reach our majority. And when we reach our majority, that's that's what's known in the uh, in the New Testament as the adoption of sons, where we have the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of adult or grown children. Now, we're not going to get into adoption in this session, but that will be what comes up next because Paul's going to talk about our position in Christ as adopted sons of God. So, see, the problem is, the problem is our sin. The problem is not the law. Uh, Again, Romans 7, verses 12 and following, it says, So the law is holy, the commandments holy and righteous and good. Paul asked, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. That through what is good, through the law, that's good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. just shows us the how totally depraved we really are. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold under sin. He says, you know, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, it, 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 the first thing it tells us, Paul reminds us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, you know, what kind of response do you get from a physically dead person? You don't get any. What kind of spiritual response do you get from a spiritually dead person? You don't get any. That's the reason that the primary need for everyone is, is life, spiritual life. God has to breathe into us the breath of life. <clears throat> Again, what happened in the Garden of Eden, I think, is a, is a good example. God creates all of these things by speaking. And then on the sixth day, He creates man, but not by speaking. He creates him. He forms him out of the dust and the elements of the earth. And then what does He do? He says He breathes into him the breath of life. God, as it were, bent over and breathed into him the breath of life. Ruach is the word for wind. It's the same word for spirit and God. That's, that's what we need. We need as for people, for those of us who are spiritually dead in our trespasses, we need for God to invade our lives and breathe into us the breath of life. And when He does... When He does, we, are, we begin to see ourselves for the sinners that we truly are. We see Christ as the only remedy for our sin. And we cry out to Him, have mercy on us, O God. He, he, at, the, at the time He breathes that life into us, He gives us faith. He regenerates us giving us faith, giving us the ability to repent of our sins. So the problem is not the law. It never was. The problem is our sin. Now, notice uh, in verse 25, again, he said, he said, before faith came, we were imprisoned until the coming faith. Before faith came, we were under a guardian until faith came. He's, then he goes on to say, but now that faith has come, 
We're no longer under a guardian. Neither are we under, are we imprisoned uh, because of our fear of death. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. See, this is where he begins to introduce the idea of adoption. That, that, uh, that, that word sons has to, has to do with adoption. We are born into the family of God. That's the new birth. We're born again. But we also are made sons. That is, we're given this, uh, we're given this adult, uh, mature status with uh, commensurate responsibilities and privileges as well. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, don't get ahead of yourselves on this baptism thing. When it says you were baptized into Christ, this has nothing to do with water. It has nothing to do with sprinkling, pouring, dunking, or anything else. You were baptized into Christ. It means our identification with Christ. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, when John the baptizer was out uh, down at the River Jordan doing his preaching of repentance, and what was it that he would say? He said, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which has nothing to do with water. Now, should as believers, should we be baptized? Well, that's a good idea because it's an open identification and the Bible encourages us to do that. Uh, and, and we ought to do that. And you, you pick whichever form of uh, baptism that, uh, that you want to pick. But this word right here is a, is a dry uh, baptism. As many as you of you as were baptized into Christ, that is, Christ baptized us with His Holy Spirit. He placed us into the body of Christ. You have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you are a rich person or a poor person, it doesn't matter as far as your acceptability to God. If you are trusting in Christ, it's all equal there at the foot of the cross. You say, well, yeah, but that, that rich person can, he can give a lot more money so you know he, God's going to really appreciate him. Well, you need to think back to that incident where Jesus was watching people put money in the treasury during his earthly ministry. And the Pharisees and the scribes had come up and they'd blow their trumpets so everybody turned around and looked and see them drop their money in the in the in the offering container. And then there was this little woman who had two mites. And a mite is worth a half a cent. So she had a penny. And she dropped what she had in there. It was all she had. And what did Jesus say? He said, this woman's given more than anybody else that I've seen up here today. And then He goes on to say, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What promise? The promise that God made to Abraham. Remember, the promise God told Abraham that he would uh, that he would bless him that he would have an offspring that would come through him that offspring certainly was physically was uh, was was the Jewish nation but spiritually it's all who are trusting in Christ that's the point that he's making here and the proclamation of the gospel takes that promise all over the world notice what uh, uh, there's a paraphrase I put in your notes here. I'd forgotten about that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 and following, he says, and this is a paraphrase of what we've been talking about. He says, uh, again, this is from the Living Bible. It says, well then, are, are God's laws and God's promises against each other? Of course not. If we could be saved by His laws, then God would not have had to give us a different way to get out of the grip of sin. For the Scriptures insist we're all its prisoners. The only way out is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way of escape is open to all who believe Him. Until Christ came, we were guarded by the law, kept in protective custody, so to speak, until we could believe in the coming Savior. Let me put it another way. 
The Jewish laws were our teacher and guide until Christ came to give us right standing, that's justification, with God through our faith. So, what is the believer's status under the gospel as we see here? Well, he says now that faith has come. We are adopted sons of God. We're, we, we've reached the age of majority. We are, uh, we are full grown in God's eyes. That's the subject of our next session. We're, we're, we as believers are one in Christ. We're united in Him. We as believers in Christ are also spiritually Abraham's offspring and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And it's this whole thing serves uh, not only as an argument, but an also an introduction to the next argument as to what it means to be in Christ. And that's where we're going to really get into the whole subject of, uh, of, of adoption. So let's uh, let me point you to the conclusion here and just look at a couple of things here. Um, Paul's argument certainly illustrates the unity of the Bible. Uh, and I've got a quote here from John Stott in his book, Only One Way, which is, I think, uh, an excellent volume, and I, I would recommend that you read it. It's produced by InterVarsity Press from 1968. Uh, that's Stott, S-T-O-T-T. Here, and I quote, Here the Apostle Paul brings together Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ. In eight short verses, he spans about 2,000 years. He surveys practically the whole Old Testament landscape. He presents it like a mountain range whose highest peaks are Abraham and Moses and whose Everest is Jesus Christ. He shows how God's promise to Abraham was confirmed by Moses and fulfilled in Christ. Gosh, that's a great quote. See, the purpose of God's law never, never, never was to save anyone. Now, the Judaizers would have, would, were telling the Galatians otherwise. But the purpose of God's law never was to save anyone. Rather, the law was given to expose sin, to provoke sin, and ultimately to condemn the sinner. As we see how hopelessly we how hopeless we are to try to keep the law, the law exposes our inability to help ourselves, and it exposes our need for the mercy of God. Oh God, if you don't do something to help me, I cannot help myself. The nature of the Christian life is characterized as being free in Christ, not shackled by sin. We are free from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We are being freed from the power of sin day by day. That's sanctification. One day we will be freed from the very presence of sin when we are in His physical presence. That's glorification. We are sons and daughters to the living God. We are not slaves and are not to be slaves to any system of merit, whether it's the law of Moses or whether it's somebody else's man-made system. We are heirs together with other believers in Christ of God Himself. And that inheritance, that inheritance that we have is the indwelling Holy Spirit. In, in the book of Ephesians, he's referred to as the down payment or the earnest or the guarantee of our inheritance. That means there's more, you know, a, a, if you buy a house or, uh, uh, or you put down some earnest money, what does that mean? That means there's more to come. Well, He's the guarantee that there is more to come. There is a great inheritance that we have as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And His indwelling presence in us through the Holy Spirit is that guarantee that one day there is going to be more. So let me close with, uh, with this passage from Titus chapter 3, verses 3-7, through 7, where Paul wrote, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy that He's shown us in His Son, the Lord Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Praise be to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.